Amen. Thank you, Serge, for leading us this morning. Good morning again. Are we awake? A number of years ago, John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you may remember it. I remember reading it when I was still pretty young in the ministry. But I always remembered uh, a part of that book, two stories that Piper told, and he contrasted them with each other. And I remember reading them, and it really turned my perspective on life upside down. The first story was about two elderly women who had devoted most of their lives to the mission field in Cameroon. And there they served the poor and they, they told people in that struggling African nation all about Jesus. And then one day they were riding in a car and the brakes failed and the car went off the edge of a cliff and both of them were killed. And Piper asked the question in the book, he said, was that a tragedy? And his answer was no, it wasn't a tragedy, it was a glory. He says, those lives were not wasted and those lives were not lost. For Jesus has told us, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. The second story was very, very different. Piper referred to a Christian couple that he knew who had taken an early retirement in their mid-50s. They'd moved to Florida where they were now spending their days cruising on their boat, playing in a softball league, and collecting shells. And Piper wrote this. He said, this apparently is now the American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. That, he wrote, is a tragedy. That turned my life upside down reading that, because it's so contrary to what so many of us were raised with in terms of the American dream. It's always stuck with me. And I don't want to be too hard, because over the years, I've known a lot of Christians, good friends of mine, people that I love and respect, who have decided that that is their goal, to find a way to comfortably retire and sort of fade away into the sunset, and to live what they call the good life. And basically, the argument goes, well, look, I've, I've earned this. I've worked really, really hard for many years, or I've spent decades raising children, and so now I've earned this time to be comfortable and to do my thing and to indulge myself. And again, I don't want to press too hard uh, against that attitude because we've all been given freedom in Christ to make choices, and for some, that's the choice that they've made. It's not sinful, but is it God's best? It's not sinful, but is it God's best? Now, seasons change in life. We know that to be true, right? Solomon wrote this about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. And with each season that comes in our lives, our priorities change. It starts with education and, and then marriage and building a career and kids and, and then grandkids. And so our focus is constantly in flux, but one thing remains the same. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the promise is that he'll supply all of our needs so that we don't have to worry about tomorrow. So I keep looking for that verse, that passage in scripture that tells me if I just work really hard and put in 30 or 40 years at my job or, or work hard to raise my kids, that I've earned the right to stop serving others and to start serving myself. If I come up with that verse, I'll let you know. But so far, I haven't found it. It seems to me that as we get closer to glory, 
we ought to be more committed than ever to serving the Lord and building up his church. It seems to me that those, for those of us with graying hair, that experience and wisdom that we've, that we've gleaned over the years, the long years of walking with God, ought to be intentionally passed on to the next generation in the church. That our many years of studying God's word should, in our later years, be turned into teaching and mentoring and discipling. It seems to me that as we get closer to enjoying eternity with Jesus, that we ought to have a greater passion than ever before to see more people come to know him. Personally, I want to be like Simeon. You know the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2? He's it's said that he's, he's close to death, but he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says he is continually and constantly looking for the consolation of Israel to arrive. Or, or like Anna, who was 84 years old when Jesus was born. But Luke says she never left the temple, serving there day and night with fasting and prayer. Friends, when, when I get to that age, if, if the Lord is gracious to me, I want to be serving in God's house, not collecting shells on a beach in Florida. Now, if there was anyone who ever deserved to retire and get a little peace and quiet, it was the Apostle Paul. The man had been traveling for many years all over the Mediterranean world. He had been risking his life to evangelize and plant churches. We know that he endured threats on his life. He endured beatings and imprisonment. He was almost stoned to death. He was shipwrecked. Numerous other dangers and hardships. And by the time that he's writing this letter to the Romans, he's about my age. He's somewhere probably in his mid-50s. And you can almost hear people saying, hey, Paul, brother, when are you going to sort of slow it down just a bit? When are you going to back off just a wee bit? You can't keep doing this. You're not getting any younger. Your body isn't going to recover like it used to. When are you going to slow it down? Why don't you think about buying that condo in the Greek Isles, playing a little golf, and enjoy some you time? I mean, can you imagine if somebody said that, what Paul would say? I can't imagine it. Well, last Sunday in Romans 15, we looked at a number of things that characterized Paul's ministry in the past as he was writing this letter to the Romans. What we're going to do today as we shift to the next unit of thought is to look at how he viewed his ministry in the future from the moment that he was writing the letter to the Romans. And guess what? Spoiler alert, he had no intention of slowing down and no intention of retiring. So grab your Bibles. Let's make sure we get to Romans 15. We're going to look at verses 22 to 29 this morning. I mentioned it last Sunday that as we get to this part of Romans 15, Paul has really finished his, all that heavy doctrinal instruction, and the rest of the letter is about two things, his ministry and his relationships. And so what's interesting is I, I know in this church we have, we have two types of people that love sermons, some that love the really heavy, theologically, doctrinally rooted sermons, and others that are more related, relatable. They're more about relationships and such. And so we've been feeding the heavy doctrine for a long time, and now we're getting to the really personal stuff. So it's beautiful. Everybody wins. <laughs> it's the beauty of, actually, it's the beauty of expository preaching, right? Because as you go through a book from beginning to end, you get a little bit of everything. So we're getting into some really personal stuff here. Let's Actually, let's back up to verse 17, and we'll read down through verse 29. You'll get the flow of thought. Verse 17 says, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. 
Okay, so he's talking about what God has accomplished through him in the past. And here's what it looks like. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as, how did we say it last week? Illyricum, good. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Now he's going to transition to his future plans. Verse 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Who's the you? The believers in Rome. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I finish this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full fullness of the blessing of Christ. So here's what I want to do this morning. Obviously, this passage is filled with all kinds of historical references, so I want to dig into it a little bit and set the context. And then at the end, what we'll do is try to, try to extract some principles that you and I can live out in the church today. So let me set the scene. The first thing you need to know about this passage is you see that Paul has a great love for these Roman believers, even though, by the way, he's never been to Rome. But he has a great love for them, and at some point he knows he wants to get there to this imperial city to spend some quality fellowship time with them. And by the way, this isn't the first time he's expressed this. He's sort of bookending it. Remember way back in chapter 1, he said some of the same stuff. Chapter 1, verse 9, he said, For God is my witness that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. He prays for, he's never been to Rome, and yet he's constantly praying for this church. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, he says, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So I'm, I really want to get there. I want to bring something to you. I want to receive something from, from you as well. We can mutually build each other up, and he longs to do this. And then at the end of the same letter here in chapter 15, he repeats this, verse 23. I've had for many years a longing to come visit you, he says. Verse 24, I hope to see you when I pass through and to be helped by you on the way to Spain. After, he says, I've enjoyed your company for a while. So his love for the believers in Rome and his desire to see them is heavy on his heart, yet look what he says in verse 22. So far, he's been hindered or prevented from coming to them, which, of course, raises the question, well, why? What has stopped him from taking this trip to Rome? And the answer is what we read in verses 19 and 20. Because he's been busy preaching the gospel of Christ, all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Paul's been really, really busy. Now, it's interesting. For the, again, for, for, the pre, for the previous 13 years, we talked about this last Sunday, he has been traveling all over the map, planting these Gentile churches. In fact, this gives me an excuse to put a map up, okay? So where, where has he been? Well, the blue mark is what? 
good. So he's, of course, the church is launched from Jerusalem. And so he starts in, in southern uh, Palestine or Israel. He moves further north into what we call Syria. Then he comes into this giant landmass that today is Turkey that we call Asia Minor. And then across the Aegean Sea to, to, we saw it in the text, Macedonia and Achaia, which are the two Roman provinces of Greece. And then north up to Illyricum and Dalmatia. Okay. By the way, where is Spain on this map? It's not there. The map can't even contain it. So you see the next landmass to the west is the Italian peninsula, and you'll see Rome there. And even further west is where Spain is, literally the edge of the known Gentile world at this time. So catch this. Paul's desire to get to Rome for a visit has been hindered not by some type of outside force or by, by Satan or anything like that, but by his own calling and his own ministry to the Gentile nations, because that was his priority for 13 years. So the delay in getting to Rome wasn't accidental. It was a purposeful choice on his part. But now he says, things have changed. In verse 23, he says, look, good news. My work in these regions is now complete. There's no further place for me here, he writes. No more church planning to be done. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, the name of Jesus is now on the tongues of Gentiles from all over the known world, even as far west as Rome. Although somebody else planted that church, as far west as Rome, the church is being established. This is Paul sort of sitting back and going, man, God is good. The gospel is going forth. Now, he says, look, I've done everything I can in this area. This is Paul's retirement moment, if he wants it. 13 years I've been on the road. Look at all the work that God has done. Remember he said, look, I'm not going to brag or boast about anything except what Christ has done through me. Look at the churches. The Gentile world is now talking about Jesus. Churches are flourishing. This is his retirement moment. This is the time to say, you know, I scouted out about 10 acres somewhere in Greece, in Macedonia, right? I could build a cabin there. I could go quiet. I could retreat from the world. I could focus on me and enjoy the good life in my my later years. Or, as an alternative, at the very least, what I could do is cruise up to Rome, take a little vacation, right? Hang out with the believers, do some sightseeing, right? That's not, that wouldn't be a sinful thing, a sinful choice at all, right? Because everybody, everybody gets a vacation now and then. But here's what you need to know about Paul. That's not how he was wired. He was not wired to say, I've done it all. There's nothing more to do. I can now retire. That just not was the man. This was the man who wrote to the Ephesian believers, be careful how you walk, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. He, di he didn't see these, these short number of years, and, and that's our life, right? It's a, a mist that comes and goes. These short numbers of years that we have on the earth as a time for him. He saw it as a time to worship the Lord and to serve others, period. That's how he's wired. It was time to look forward to the next phase of his ministry. He still had big dreams for building God's kingdom to the Gentiles. The only thing that was really going to stop him was if the Lord called him home. I mean, that's the way he viewed life. And in fact, at the time he's writing the book of Romans, his death is coming in about eight years. And it's going to be a very hard eight years. The thing we, we sometimes forget is the most devoted followers of Christ often suffer the most. Those are going to be eight hard years. We're going to look at it next week. So the dream now was not retirement, but it was Spain. 
How do I get to Spain? You see him mention it in verse 24, again in verse 28. This meant going even further west, again, to the very edge of the known Gentile world, to the unknown. And in looking forward to that goal, Paul says, I can knock out a second objective, and that is to visit these Roman believers along the way. But not as a vacation. This is interesting. He, he, he's setting expectations here. He's like, I'm not going to stay for a long time. If you look at verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing. Not, hey, I'm coming to hang out for three or four months and, and put down roots and, and just chill with you guys. No, it, it's in passing. He's laying out expectations. As important as these believers were to him, he is still committed to the greater priority. And that is getting to a land that still doesn't know the name of Jesus. That's his priority. The Roman church, by contrast, was well-established. And so that fact also fits into his planning. If you look at verse 24 again, he says, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped by you on the way to Spain. What does that mean? Well, he says, look, the Roman church, it's well-established. It's got resources. You know what? I'm going to make this a base of operations. And this is what you needed to do to travel in the ancient world. You created bases of operation so that you could extend your mission. So he wanted to, to go to Rome and to basically create, a, I guess you'd call it a, a refueling station as he looks further west, a place where he could, he could be encouraged by, by rich fellowship, a place where he could get prayer support, a place where he could, he could get material needs met before, you know, we all need supplies, right? When we go into the field, he could get supplies. And, and, and maybe, possibly, if God willed it, he could pick up a companion or two who might be willing to go out into the unknown with him towards Spain. So he saw this, Spain as the objective, but he also saw that this fellowship with the Romans would be beneficial, not only to his relationship, but to his future mission. Now, question is, did Paul ever get to Spain? Did he ever make it? We don't know. In fact, you know, have you ever created your top 10 list of questions you're going to ask people when you get to heaven? When I see Paul, I mean, is there a moment where I get to, uh, do I get like an hour of Paul's uninterrupted time in heaven, Adam? Do I get that? Not sure? Okay, well, this is one of the top 10 questions I have for Paul when I get that sit-down time is, did you get to Spain? Many scholars say no, and we'll touch more on this next Sunday, but many scholars say no. Remember, Acts chapter 28 ends with, what? Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest, right? But he's, he's not dead, obviously. And, and in fact, he's, in, the, in the way that Luke writes it, he's not even fearing execution. It says that he's actually teaching about Jesus completely unhindered. So Acts 28 ends at that point. If in Acts 29 were written, then we might know what happens in the end. So scholars doubt that Paul ever did make it to Spain, but there are two documents that we have which indicate that it's possible that he did. There's a guy named Clement, who was one of the early church fathers, who in about the year 96 wrote down that Paul made it, and the quote is, he made it to the limit of the West. He didn't give us a location, but he said Paul made it to the limit of the West, which could very well have been Spain. If some of you guys in, in college studied the Muratorian Fragment, uh, that is a, an incredible uh, early canon list, probably meh, early 2nd century, it's mentioned in there that Paul did, in fact, make it to Spain. But we can't be sure. So we can only be sure what we see in the text, but there's one thing here that we do see in our passage, and this is where the whole story of Spain and Rome and Paul's mission takes a decisive turn. Basically, he says this, I long to see Rome and to fellowship with the saints. My passion, my big objective is to get to Spain, but for now, 
there's something even more urgent. And this is sort of takes us by surprise. There's a mission that I have to go on. And, th- and this, you think about Paul's mindset, this is sort of a surprise, right? It's a thousand miles in the opposite direction to Spain. I'm actually not going west, I'm going east back to where? To Jerusalem. Verse 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. To do what? To serve the saints. Now, again, think about this. For Paul not to fulfill this desire to go to Rome. For Paul not to to, uh, engage in his calling and ministry in evangelism in Spain, how important must this mission in Jerusalem have been? Remember, he's getting up there in age. Okay? And, and traveling a thousand miles is not an easy thing in the ancient world. And yet he says, this is where I've got to go. I'm sure it raised questions amongst those who were a part of Paul's ministry. Really, Paul? You're going to do this now? At this critical juncture where the, the gospel is spreading all over the Gentile world, you're going back to Jerusalem? Are you sure about that? I mean, could you not maybe do this later? Right? Strike while the iron is hot. Get to Spain. Right? Build the, build the Gentile church. Could you do this later? Or how about this? You go on to Rome and Spain and send somebody else back to Jerusalem. Why not? Right? Those would have been the practical ministry questions we probably would have asked at that time. And so the only thing we conclude, can, can conclude is that this trip to Jerusalem must have been, in Paul's mind, essential to his calling and ministry. That he saw this one mission, this one trip, as the, pos- the, the most possible way to cement the effectiveness of the Gentile church in the first century. So was it the right call? Remember in Acts 21, he's warned not to go. Do you remember that story? Prophet Agabus comes and says, look, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound. What does Paul say? I'm going. So maybe next week we'll answer the question, did Paul make a mistake? Was Paul too stubborn to listen to the Holy Spirit? Hmm. So this actually brings up an important principle for us to consider. How do you decide what God's will is for you when there's a million good things you could do? I mean, isn't that true? As a Christian in a a church where you're living a vibrant life as a member here, there's so many good godly things that you can do. How do you decide what God's best is? For Paul, visiting the believers in Rome, good. Going to Spain to evangelize, Good. Going back to Jerusalem to serve the saints there? Good. So what do you do? How did Paul decide to go to Jerusalem? How did he decide that was the right thing to do? For you, engaging uh, with my ministry team here at Oak Hill? Say it, good. (laughs) Attending a community group? Good. Devoting more time to my family and my spouse? Really good. Going on the men's retreat? If you're a guy. Only if you're a guy, but good. (laughs) Being faithful to study hard for my classes? Students said good, right? Becoming a member at Oak Hill? Good. Bringing a meal to somebody who is in need? Good. Right? You get the idea. So where do you start? How do you make those choices? What are your boundaries? What are your limits to what you can do and can't do? Well, friends, these are matters of prayer. And matters of reflection and matters for seeking out wisdom from more experienced believers. 
here, here's the thing. They're not to be stumbled into without serious consideration. Okay, there's a lot of good things to do, but do we just stumble into things and just make willy-nilly choices without really praying about it or thinking about it or asking for wisdom? Don't stumble into your life. Do a spiritual inventory. What skills has God given you that would lead to his best for you? Or what, what, what spiritual gifts has the Holy Spirit given you to build up the body of Christ? What passions has he put in your heart to serve others? What am I capable of doing in this season in my life? All of those questions matter. When it comes to making choices between good things, all of those questions matter. Because you can't do it all, all at the same time. Anybody notice that? You cannot do it all, all at the same time. So wisdom is required. What can you do? What are the good things you could do? It's about establishing priorities. What's best for God's kingdom? And so that's, that's an issue for you and the Lord and for those who might be able to give you wise counsel. But again, don't stumble into it. Be prayerful about it. Be purposeful about it. Be intentional. Amen? For Paul, there was two factors involved that caused him to say, good stuff over here, but God's best is for me to go back to Jerusalem. One factor, I'll give, put him on the screen, was faithfulness that he had made in a promise. And the second one goes back to something we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, Paul's unrelenting passion to see unity in the church from, from two disparate groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, one worshiping body in the church. Those are the two things that made him say, I have to go back to Jerusalem. So here was the circumstance. Here's what's going on that, that caused Paul to make this decision. And you see this, you see this story interwoven through so many books of the New Testament. The church at Jerusalem, where he's going back to, was suffering greatly at the time Paul wrote this letter. Suffering from two things, from persecution and from poverty. And they needed help. They desperately needed help. Remember now, we're talking about the church in Jerusalem. This is the original church, born right there in the city where Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Birthed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's a completely Jewish church. We read that it's a, a vibrant body that is devoted to the teaching of the apostles, right? And to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer and to the mutual care and sharing of all things together. And this amazing gospel witness in the middle of a highly Jewish city. But the execution of Stephen rocks this church badly. In Acts chapter 8, it says, A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and most of the believers were scattered to other parts of Judea and Samaria. Now, over time, we see in history that this church began to slowly come back and reform, and James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the lead shepherd of this church at great risk to his own life. In fact, uh, several ancient sources tell us that James was put to death by the Pharisees in the year 62, so about five years after the letter to the Romans had been written. So the believers in the church in Jerusalem lived under constant pressure, threats to their lives, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, just the, just the Jewish population itself. They all wanted to destroy this Christ-following church in Jerusalem. To be an ethnic Jew living in Jerusalem following Jesus was seen to be, a, you, were, you were a traitor. You would turn your back on the law of Moses. You turned your back on your traditions. And so you were seen as a traitor. So you can imagine, because of this persecution, because these people were scorned by the population, how hard would it have been to make a living? 
in Jerusalem. How, how, how do you get a job when everybody hates you? You rely on charity. And so you can imagine how poor they must have been. And on top of that, and this is prophesied in Acts 11, there was a great famine in the land during the reign of Emperor Claudius. And so they're, they're poor, they're without food, and they are being persecuted. This is a, a, this is a, a disaster for the church in Jerusalem. Now, the question that always comes up, and this is just an aside, well, if that's true, why not just get up and leave? Why not? Look, if you're struggling, get up and leave. Go find a place where you're not going to be persecuted or where there's jobs. And I'll just share something with you. And, and this, is, this is my personal observation. The Jewish people are incredibly tenacious. They, they don't get scared off easily. Having been to the land a number of times, I, I have walked into Jewish neighborhoods where they're under the threat of terrorism and Palestinian attack all the time. And they, they, their, their houses look like barricaded fortresses. They drive cars that look like something out of a Mad Max movie with bars all over them and stuff. And you know what? You're like, why would you live like this? And every guide who lives there, you know what they'll tell you? It's the land of their fathers. They will not be moved. They will die there. They would sooner die than be rooted out of there. And so I picture the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem just tenaciously rooted and saying, you know what, this is the place where my Savior was crucified and where he came back from the dead, and I will not be moved. This is an amazing church that's really struggling. So I mentioned the first motivation for Paul. It was faithfulness to a promise. Here's what I mean by that. It comes from Galatians chapter 2. Paul recalls there what happened when he met Peter, James, and John. How he explained to them that he had this mission to the Gentiles. And here's what he writes in Galatians chapter 2. He says, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Peter, James, and John. That's a big deal, right? These are, these are the three pillars of the church. And they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And he says, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision, to the Jews. Here's what they said. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the three pillars of faith say, okay, Paul, we get it. We believe God is moving. We believe that God has called you and Barnabas to this mission to the Gentile world. We affirm that. Go for it. But don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your Jewish brothers and sisters as you run out there into the Greek world. Remember the poor. And Paul gave him his right hand, and he essentially said, I will not forget. And so now here he is, years later in Corinth, writing this letter to the Romans, and he knows what's happening back in Jerusalem, and he cannot ignore it because of his promise. I picture this little voice in his head saying, don't forget. Don't forget the promise that you made. Don't forget where you've come from. So we see in verse 25 in our text, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. He says serving, and the translation of that basically is, I'm bringing this aid to them, to the saints there. So that's the first motivation. He's going to fulfill this promise. Here's the second one. And again, I know we've sort of beat this. This has been a dead horse that we've beaten for weeks now, right? Romans 14 and 15. We've got this incredible uh, uh, division between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. But you have to know this fact. The discomfort and the suspicion between these two groups was most severe in relation to the church in Jerusalem. Now, why do I say that? Because, again, this was the original church. 
It carried a sense of prestige and authenticity that could not be matched in a Greek city like Ephesus or Corinth. To use a modern term, this was the mothership of all churches. And it was also the most distinctly Jewish. So their worship traditions, the way they lived as a church body together was very different than the church in Ephesus or in Corinth or anywhere else. So although everybody worshiped Jesus, you still had ethnic differences. You still had cultural differences. You still had religious differences. And it caused this sort of natural alienation between the two groups, looking at each other with a certain amount of suspicion. Okay, I sort of believe that, okay, I'm going to trust that you really worship Jesus, but then why do you do this? That doesn't make sense to me. And the other side's going, well, why do you do that? And so there's this, and this is Paul's passion, is to, is to get rid of this division, to break down this alienation. But how's he going to do it? That's where the contribution comes in in verse 26. Look at this. He says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, the Greek churches, have been pleased to make a contribution. The Greek word for that contribution, some of you know this, is koinonia. This fellowship, this contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Here's what's going on. It's one thing to say that you care about people, but talk is cheap. It's another thing to do something. It's another thing to show tangibly that you love and care for another group of people. Do something about it. Show it. And so Paul sees this contribution. And, and again, if you read back through a number of the letters, Paul's been going all over the Greek world making this collection, saying, guys, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, I know they're different from you. Let it go. <laughs> okay? Here, we need to, we need to uh, this collection is so important. We've got to help our brothers and sisters. This is how much we love and care for you. That's the message. That's what Paul wanted to do. He basically wanted to say, he wanted to get to Jerusalem and say, look, look how much your brothers and sisters in the Greek world care for you. See that the gospel has really changed them. Because that was the doubt, right, with the Jewish Christians. Are they really saved? Look at how they live. No, see that the gospel has made them generous. See that the gospel has caused them to love and care. See that they desire to worship God by serving you in this way. See that they really do love and care for you. And here's a tangible example of it. Guys, this was a huge thing for Paul. Absolutely huge. So important, in fact, that he was willing to delay visiting Rome and willing not, maybe never to get to Spain. That's how big this is. And so big, in fact, that he wasn't willing to just hand it off to a friend and saying, you go do this. He needed to do this personally, not just to deliver. Anybody can deliver money, right? It was the message he wanted to bring with the money that made all the difference in the world. That's what he means when he writes in verse 26. Look there, verse 26, putting my seal on this fruit of theirs. He's talking about being able to personally deliver this gift and to bring the message that goes along with it. And listen, on a personal level, that choice was going to cost Paul greatly. Years in prison. We'll get to it next week. Years in prison. But I still think he wouldn't have had it any other way because this issue was so big to him. That make sense? Paul believed that this gift would bring the gospel full circle. That's the picture. The gospel had started in Jerusalem. It had gone out west. And now it was time to come back. Close the loop from Rome all the way back to Jerusalem to show that Jesus is one and to really show the type of unity that Jesus himself prayed for 
in John chapter 17. Notice also that in Paul's mind, the Gentiles owed this fellowship. You see that? Verse 27, he says, you owe this contribution as a debt to your Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, this seems strange, doesn't it? He says, they're indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their, that is the the Jewish spiritual blessings, then they, the Gentile believers, are indebted to minister to them also in material blessings. Where do you think this teaching comes out of? Do you remember another place in Romans? Anybody remember Romans 11? I know it's been a while. Same argument here. The Gentiles are like wild olive branches, right? And they've been grafted into the natural olive tree, which is Israel. The only reason the Gentiles are included in the church right now is because they've been added to the root of Israel. This is the argument that he's making here. So all the spiritual blessings that the Gentiles enjoy, all out there in the Greek world, forgiveness of sins, right? Justification by faith alone, reconciliation with God, escaping condemnation, the hope of glory, all of it come from Jesus who was their, ready for it, Jewish Messiah. True? All of those things, the Jewish Messiah. So Paul wanted the Gentiles not to forget this. He says, if you've benefited from their spiritual life, then you owe them your material life. You owe a debt. Now, that would be a tough pill to swallow, wouldn't it? If somebody walked, say, we, say Paul walked in here today and he said, hey, you owe Killians. You owe a debt. We're passing the hat, you owe this. What would we do? We'd be giving the side eye, like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. What do you mean we owe this? Right? Because that's, we're Americans, right? Don't, don't take my stuff. No, you owe this. What would we do? It'd be a tough pill to swallow. But here's the thing that we know from the text of Scripture. There's something supernatural going on in this collection. It's not normal. In fact, we read it in our call to worship this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, right? How the great, it says the grace of God abounded to these Greek churches so that they didn't have to pry open their wallet with a crowbar, but they desired to give. They desired it. They wanted to do this. It says even out of their own poverty, they're poor, especially up in Macedonia. Now down in Achaia, they were probably wealthier, but in Macedonia, they're poor as well. They still wanted to give. In fact, it says they begged Paul to take more. Is that normal? That's supernatural. So Paul doesn't just give it as a command. He says, you owe this to him, sure, but they were pleased to do it. That's what it says twice in our text, 26 and 27. They were pleased to do it. Guys, that is supernatural. In fact, in that 2 Corinthians 8 passage, Paul even calls that type of giving unexpected. It even surprised him that they were going to give to that extent. Here's the principle for you and I. You ready? Sacrificial giving to the work of the Lord always has two aspects to it. Yes, it's a duty, but it's also a delight. And you, and you got to get that right. If for, for your giving to be godly and, and God-focused, Yes, it's a duty that we owe, but it's a delight that we get to enjoy, that God has given us that privilege of giving to his work from the blessings that we've received. It's amazing. So that's what's going on in this passage. And again, we're going to see next week, just the last four verses of chapter 15, and we're going to see how prayer fits into the will of God, because that's a big part of this, the rest of this text. For now, let me wrap up with just a couple bullet points, okay? We've already looked at a couple principles today. Number one, how do we discern good things versus God's best? Take it seriously. 
Secondly, giving is both a duty and a delight. Really, really important. And as a bonus to that, let me just say this. If somebody blesses you spiritually and you have a chance to return that blessing materially, do it. By all means, do it. And I'm not talking about writing them a check. I'm talking about bringing a meal or, or, or sending them a word of encouragement or, or doing something to bless their family. If they've, they've blessed, and I know this sounds self-serving, right? It's the pastor guy talking. But it's so many people in this church who run around spiritually serving others. So if they've blessed you spiritually, maybe consider blessing them materially. It's really a beautiful principle. Here's the third principle. Simple one. Keep your promises. Keep your promises. Man, listen, Paul could have said this. I know the Jerusalem church is struggling, but I got big goals. I really want to see Rome. I really want to get to Spain. Somebody else will do that Jerusalem thing. But he made a promise. And so sometimes today in the church, we say we're going to do this or we're going to do that. We commit to somebody that will be there at something. And then what happens? Well, something came up. Something came up. Friends, there's always going to be something that can come up. Always. I mean, we live incredibly busy lives. There's always something that can get in the way of you fulfilling a promise. So let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Have integrity in this. If you've made a promise, especially in the church family, fulfill that promise. It matters to God. God would have us be men and women of integrity that make promises and then come through and fulfill those promises. Fourth principle. Relationships are utterly essential to gospel living. Utterly essential. Do you see in, in both chapter 1 and chapter 15 here how Paul expresses this longing for relationship, to be with other believers? He's looking for refreshment. He's looking to, 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 to hang out with people, to get to know them, to, to bring a spiritual gift, to receive a spiritual gift. If you had this vision of Paul as this sort of rough-and-tumble, solo guy that just went around doing his thing because he was so tough, you've completely missed his character. You've completely missed the man. You have it wrong. He was a man who understood his need for relationships, always. In fact, we're going to see that when we get to chapter 16, he is going to go through a litany of almost 30 names of people in chapter 16 that he wants to acknowledge, greet, and thank because he valued relationships. This was a guy that built networks of relationships and saw that as an absolute key to doing ministry. He loved to work in teams. And so for us, if you're trying to live the Christian life in isolation, or you want to put arm's distance between yourself and other people, again, you have freedom in Christ, but you're missing out on so much. And I say that as a recovering introvert. I get it. It's not, it's not a simple or easy thing for me to, to make friends. I, I, I totally get it. And so I understand the fear. I, I just I want to encourage you to walk by faith in this. Walk by faith and take the risk and trust God that it's the best thing for you is to live in relationship with other believers. It will... Again, I, I don't know. I've been a Christian for 35 years or so. I can say the first 10 years of my life, I didn't get the church, didn't understand why I needed other people. I was fine. I was strong. I didn't need all of that stuff. And living on this side of it, it is so much richer and so much deeper. You and I need relationships. 
It's absolutely essential to gospel living. Okay, last thing. And we come back to where I started. Number five, make the most of the time that God has given you. Make the most of the time that God has given you. Here's a verse to tape to your mirror at home or over your desk at work. Psalm 90, verse 12, the prayer of Moses. Okay, so if you love Moses, listen to what he says. Teach us to number our days, Lord, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Number our days. So what does that mean? If you're in your 20s or 30s here right now, you're like, whatever, I'm young. Listen, it'll happen fast. (laughs) Take it from me. It'll happen fast. It still matters when you're young to number your days. It means planning well for the future. It means establishing godly priorities. Again, take it seriously because I'm telling you, the days are evil. And if you haven't looked around at this country recently, things are getting hazy fast. Number your days, even if you're young. Establish those priorities. What is God calling you? What's God's best for your life? How do I rank the good things in my life? If you're young, there's no excuse not to number your days. For those of you who right now, like me, you're in your middle age years or you're older, what are your future plans? Do they include continuing to work hard to advance the kingdom as Paul did? Is your goal to to pass along your wisdom and experience by discipling other younger people? Is it leveraging the experience and the wisdom that God has granted you for for his sake in worship? Or are you planning to ramp down, to sort of fade into the sunset and to play softball and to collect shells? The great missionary William Carey was famous for saying this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And the only thing I would add to that is Continue with that mindset until the day that God calls you home. Be careful how you walk, making the best use of your time. Again, next Sunday, we're going to finish chapter 15, and we're going to focus on how prayer fits into all of this, because it's really the engine that makes it go. We'll talk about how prayer fits into the will of God as he directs our steps. Amen? Pray with me.